World peace might feel kind of like a pipe dream, but what if I told you it's not? 2024 will see more than 50 elections around the world. And in some places, peace is actually on the ballot. One reason is because countries in Europe and Latin America have been experimenting with this thing called feminist foreign policy. Because right now, the way that we wage war and peace, it's kind of a boys club. The new season of Things That Go Boom from Inkstick Media and PRX is coming March 18th. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence from The Economist. In London, I'm Jason Palmer. And in New York, I'm John Fassman. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. In the transition to electric vehicles, Mexico has a lot going for it. An established auto industry, a border with the world's second largest car market, piles of lithium. We look into the investments already being made and the bumps in the road ahead. And anyone who's attended a Trump rally is familiar with the rotation of well-worn classic rock and country songs he seems to like. But it turns out the former president has inspired a subgenre of hip-hop. Meet the MAGA rappers. But first... A classic David and Goliath tale is playing out in India, and it's not clear how it's going to end. It started a week ago with a little-known American short-seller called Hindenburg Research, taking aim at India's richest man. Well, India's formerly richest man. The company alleged that the Adani Group, an enormous conglomerate named after Gautam Adani, was, quote, engaged in a brazen stock manipulation and accounting fraud scheme. The group's chief financial officer immediately shot back. Now that we have circulated our full, comprehensive, multi-hundred-page response uh, to the uh, report, uh, which clearly establishes uh, with documentary evidence that uh, it, it is report is just uh, full of misrepresentations uh, and I'm being charitable, uh, or at worst, it's just outright lies. Uh, and, and, you know, the, we are... We... Shares in Adani Enterprises, the group's biggest publicly traded arm, began to tank. One of India's flagships was listing. Uh, in last uh, two sessions, uh, Adani Group have already lost uh, 30 billion dollars uh, worth of uh, <clears throat> wealth, uh, which is uh, like which is a clear-cut impact from what. Uh, so when Adani Enterprises pressed ahead with a sale of more shares, no one should have wanted them. Buyers would be paying Adani a higher price than they would in the open market. But yesterday, at the last minute, all those overpriced shares did get sold chipping away at some of the conglomerate's considerable debts. Back on the open market, Adani Enterprises is still flailing. Just today, its share price has dropped 20%. The Adani Group has gone further than just calling Hindenburg's allegations false. It's called them an attack on India itself. It's true that big Indian firms are more enmeshed with the state than happens in many other countries. And Adani's share sale reveals hints about how India, Inc. bands together when things get tough. Hindenburg Research is a company that was very successful in putting out very skeptical reports on a number of companies, including two American firms, Lordstown and Nikola, that turned out to have really legitimate issues. But I don't think anyone in India had heard of it. 
Tom Easton is The Economist's Asia business correspondent. So when they did a report on the Adani Group in India, I think it was quite remarkable that someone who was so small could rock a company of such tremendous importance, scrutinized by so many people in India. But they really have. The report that they issued just before the market opened on January 25th was singularly the most read statement in India, not only that day, but in the days to come. Their 100-page report is on the desk of every bank and every other financial institution in the country and dominates every conversation. And before we get into what's in that report, tell me a bit about the Adani Group itself. What does it do? The Adani Group really has no equivalent in many countries around the world. It is responsible for a fifth of electricity transmission in India, maybe a similar share of the cement industry. 30% of the grain is stored in its warehouses. It's building roads. Its port infrastructure is the most important port infrastructure in India by far. I mean, Adani in just a few decades has gone from a single guy who literally traded diamonds on a street corner in Mumbai to being an industrialist at the heart of India's industry and India's economy. And so what is it that Hindenburg is alleging about this enormous company? The Hindenburg report has been very, very emphatic. It calls the Adani group of companies the largest con in corporate history. It says the shares were wildly overvalued because of share manipulation that goes through offshore funds. And by the way, the group denies all this. And secondly, that its financing is very, very shallow, and therefore it's at risk of failure. It doesn't have enough money to meet current obligations, which again, the group denies. In fact, the Adani group has gone beyond saying it's untrue. It contends the allegations are nothing but a lie. And it says that the report is a calculated attack on India. The Hindenburg Group has responded to the Adani Group's response by saying fraud cannot be obfuscated by nationalism or a bloated response that ignores every key allegation. So it's clear what Adani makes of the allegations in this report. What about the markets? What's been the response to all this? Well, the markets seriously tanked beginning on the morning of Wednesday the 25th. The Adani group of companies, all nine, have lost about a third of their market value. And they're now worth about $167 billion, which is still sizable, but the drop has been precipitous. And the drop has also taken down, to some degree, shares of institutions that are believed to be supporters of Adani, like banks that were big lenders or financiers of Adani's group. So there's been a little bit of a rebound. But I think in this very, very peculiar case, you have to separate the market into two pieces. One is the market value, and two are a very, very small group of share buyers who are extraordinarily important. This came out at a very, very sensitive moment. This came out on the morning when Donnie launched a $2.5 billion share offering. And for that offering to succeed, the share values would have to be above the level of what the company had offered to sell a new tranche of shares at. But the devastation in the market was so severe that it pushed the market price below the price of the share offering, which would seem to have scuttled the deal. But in fact, at the end of the day, they were able to still sell the $2.5 billion worth of shares that they wanted to sell. So how is it that $2.5 billion were raised if the market conditions were so poor? So that really is a striking question. The first day pledged about $750 million of the $2.5 billion. The next day, 
the retail tranche was offered and nobody was interested. I mean, the subscription on the retail side was 1% or something like that. There was just nobody in the market wanted to pay more to buy shares from the company than they could buy it on the stock exchange. And no one was that interested in buying it in the stock exchange. But then some very, very striking things happened. On Monday, International Holding Company of Abu Dhabi, which is a quasi-sovereign fund, pledged to buy $400 million worth of the underwriting. And that kind of changed the mood of the market. And in offering to buy it, at that time, they were willing to spend 10 or 20% more on those shares than they can be purchased in the open market. Then the final day, the day that the offering had to be completed, came And during the day, the stock price stayed consistently below where it had to come for retail buyers to really move in. So it looked like it would be a failure. But just before the market closed, a note went out that the underwriting was fully subscribed. So then the question was, who were the last buyers? Now, I have seen unverified but highly credible pieces of information that suggest five of the largest buyers were the family offices of five of the largest tycoons in India, fellow plutocrats in the Indian financial structure. And what does it tell you that those rich Indian businessmen would swoop in at the last and pick up the last of the tab? And pick up the last of the tab for presumably more than they would have had to pay if they just went into the market. Information on the purchases will be available on February 7th. But if this is confirmed, and I think most people really do believe it, it suggests that India Inc. really did not want one of its members attacked by a New York short seller and brought down. I mean, I can't imagine this collaboration happening in many other countries in the world. Nominally, all these guys compete in numerous ways. And yet when it came to supporting one of their group in response to a huge attack from an American investment firm, they pulled together. So... That's kind of a warning against other short sellers, I guess, ever coming into the market and seeing if they can make headway. On the other hand, a lot of the questions still exist. Over time, they'll be answered. I mean, does Adani have a strong financial structure? You know, I don't think the report is going away. And if the questions are valid, they'll continue to resonate in the market. You're not going to get a rescue mission like this every day. This was an extraordinary moment. And as India becomes more important economically and as all these Indian companies become more important economically, you'll have more and more outsiders looking at them and giving them the kind of scrutiny that they have not had in the past. And there'll be more of these sort of reports to come. And I'm not sure that those sort of doubts can be quashed by a handful of people getting together and buying a small group of shares. Tom, thanks very much for joining us. Yeah, it's been a pleasure. World peace might feel kind of like a pipe dream. But what if I told you it's not? 2024 will see more than 50 elections around the world. And in some places, peace is actually on the ballot. One reason is because countries in Europe and Latin America have been experimenting with this thing called feminist foreign policy. Because right now, the way that we wage war and peace, it's kind of a boys club. The new season of Things That Go Boom from Inkstick Media and PRX is coming March 18th. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. The race to dominate the market for electric vehicles is revving up. 
Both Tesla and Ford both recently announced plans to cut prices on some models in a bid to drive up demand. And it's not just companies that are hoping to get in on the action. There's growing international competition over where those cars will be made. And one country is quietly confident it has the edge. Mexico has a really huge opportunity to establish itself as a significant manufacturing center for electric vehicles. Sarah Burke is The Economist's Mexico City bureau chief. It already has a strong auto sector, and it hopes it can continue to have its strong position or even improve on it as car makers transition from internal combustion engines to electric vehicles. So you say it already has a strong auto industry. What does it look like right now? So car making is a big business. In 2021, Mexico produced the seventh highest number of cars of any country in the world. It's mainly foreign companies. General Motors, Ford, also many Japanese companies such as Toyota and Nissan have long made cars for export from the country, mainly from export. They also sell some internally as well. It benefits from a free trade agreement with the US and Canada. And there's also a very skilled labor force here, which is cheaper than the labor forces in surrounding countries, especially to the north. And it also shares its border with the world's second largest car market, the USA. And presumably all those advantages hold also for the the electric transition. They do. And there's an added sort of bonus at the moment. People are very concerned, companies, governments, about relying on China. And there have been a lot of supply chain snarl-ups during the pandemic and geopolitical tensions between China and America. And so companies are trying to think about sourcing things closer to home or manufacturing closer to home or at least outside China. And Mexico is ideally positioned. Mexico-made EVs also passed the protectionist-style parts of Biden's Inflation Reduction Act, in which only battery-powered vehicles made with raw materials sourced and processed in America or countries with which it has a free trade agreement, such as Mexico, will be eligible for subsidies. And on top of that, Mexico also has a good store of lithium. It's not being exploited yet, but that's needed to make EV batteries and could be a huge advantage in the future too. And so are there already signs that that Mexico is sort of dipping into this? Yeah, so there's a lot of buzz about Tesla supposedly being about to announce a gigafactory, a a huge factory essentially, in Monterrey in the north of Mexico. Already we've seen Noah Itek, which is a Chinese supplier to Tesla, building a plant there. There are also firms already here, such as General Motors, who are converting existing factories and turning them into EV assembling plants. There's one in the state of Mexico where Ford makes a Mustang Mach-E and it's going to triple its production of EVs. General Motors is spending $1 billion to reconfigure one of its plants. And there are also others sort of announcing investment in battery plants or other things. So there's a lot of money being spent so far. But despite all of this investment, it's far lower than analysts think the potential could be. I mean, if you look at announcements of investment by EV makers into the US, for example, Mexico is a tiny amount in comparison. So why is it that the investment is lower than it could be? I mean, one thing is that the Mexican government's not doing a whole lot to support these companies. So you've not seen the kind of incentives that you've seen in other countries. For example, when Tesla set up a gigafactory in Nevada in 2014, it got $1.3 billion of sweetener from the state in terms of tax credits. 
And in general, Mexico has a few things working against it, you know, rule of law and other things. But other companies are working around those. But things have got worse at the moment because of the policymaking of Andres Manuel López Obrador, Mexico's president, who's been in place since 2018. So he seems to prioritize things such as power generation by national companies, which are traditionally powered by oil and gas. And, you know, EV makers need to have, or all companies need to have a certain amount of clean energy and reliable power sources. So it's policies such as these that are turning off some people from doing the levels of investment that they would otherwise do. So one example is that several months after General Moses announced it would convert the factory, it said it would not invest further in Mexico if the laws did not encourage clean energy. So is it addressing the, these questions at the, the national level of policymaking to, to get to Mexico to, to reach its potential in that market? I think so, yes. I mean, Mexico has huge advantages geographically, who it has free trade deals with, and in terms of its already established car making industry. So it could go really far with the right government policy in place. Sarah, thanks very much for joining us. Thanks, Jason. try to imagine the soundtrack to Donald Trump's Make America Great Again movement, you might think of songs from Queen or Elton John, but the actual soundtrack sounds more like this. Tens of thousands on my right, thousands by my side. War between good and evil, watching our fists collide. Battle for our freedom now, to the streets we ride. Flags waving all around, pages full of pride. James Bennett is the Economist Lexington columnist. Christopher Townsend, who raps under the name Topher, is one of a growing number of right-wing rappers who are inspired by the former president. What exactly is MAGA rap, James? You could think of it, John, as a subgenre of political hip-hop that pairs messages of patriotism and gun rights, vaccine rejection, free speech, hatred of abortion, to the rhyme, rhythm, and tropes of hip-hop. A lot of these rappers are becoming quite popular. They churn out, in some cases, 10 or even more songs a day connected to the news. They're having the effect of making MAGA seem edgy and subversive and cool. And I think they're a sign that the movement will endure well beyond Donald Trump. Give us a taxonomy. Who are some of the stars of this microgenre? It's a mix of male musicians, white and black. Probably the most famous one right now is a white rapper named Forgiato Blow, who mixes country music and rap. Basically, every one of these rappers has done a version of Let's Go Brandon, which has become code for cussing out Joe Biden. And this is his version of the song. Bryson Gray is a black rapper from North Carolina, and his music is inspired more by trap. Here's his song, A Maga Topher, whose song, The Patriot, you heard earlier, is not a fan of the label MAGA rap. He thinks it's a way for the establishment to try to villainize rappers like him. And he prefers Christian conservative rapper. And he likes to say, or he said to me anyway, that Jesus also triggered some people. 
Here's one of his harsher songs. It's called Olympus Has Fallen. Topher lives in the small town of Philadelphia, Mississippi. It's notorious from the civil rights era as the place that three civil rights workers were murdered. I went to see him recently and met to talk about his music at Ronnie's Steak and Grill there. And I asked him who he felt he was rapping for. Who did he think of as his audience? People that's not afraid to fly the American flag. They don't think the American flag is racist. <laughs> they believe in God, love God. Want to see God throughout our country, represented throughout our country, our, our, our legislature, our government, you know, our policies. And they love the Constitution. James, what's he like? What else did you talk about? I was just really curious about his background, John. I was just trying to get some sense of where his politics came from. He served in the Air Force as a cryptological analyst. He's actually a very pleasant guy in person. Like some of his music, actually, he's got a kind of buoyant and empathetic personality. He's a thoughtful person. His influences, as we talked, range far beyond Donald Trump to Eminem, Booker T. Washington, and Malcolm X. He's from Mississippi. He grew up in a much smaller town even than Philadelphia and very rural. By the time he was 10, he says he was expected to be the man of the house. His mother was an alcoholic, and he had to deal with some pretty difficult circumstances growing up. I think I learned early on no one was coming to save me. And then I think that's what fuels my ideology today. And I think this was that moment. My mom's boyfriend at the time had hit her in the chin with a two by four. I remember being I think 13, 14 year old kid. And I remember we called the police. It took the police an hour to respond, to get to where we were. And then that's when I realized, man, even if we call for help, if we ain't doing something ourselves, it'd be too late. What do you think this trend says about the state of the MAGA movement? Well, I think these rappers are the real culture warriors of the MAGA movement. Topher's Total contempt for political authority also speaks to what I feel like is maybe an important development in our culture. You know, the left is increasingly policing our social norms as opposed to challenging and subverting them, which used to be more clearly the role of the right. And that, I think, is opening up some space for right-wing artists to claim this area, which is traditionally kind of put the arts in the vanguard of our culture as being subversive of mainstream values, challenging conventional bourgeois norms. It's really the right that's committing the more shocking and transgressive acts. You know, when Kanye West put on a MAGA hat, it's hard to imagine a more transgressive kind of action that an artist could perform today than that. And Topher, by the way, is a big supporter of Kanye. He dismisses the accusations of anti-Semitism against him. And he's really offended by what he sees as the music industry's uneven moral standards. My thing is, if the music industry will force people to change stuff talking about Jews, why are they okay with us talking about and killing each other? Why haven't they censored that? So they don't care about black people getting murdered or slurs being thrown around by black people? January 6th really shadows the MAGA movement. The whole question of 
political violence, I think, hangs over it. The Patriot is Topher's biggest hit. He put it out in December of 2019, but it's got these lyrics, including March Around the Capitol, Storm the City Gates. He performed it on January 6th in Washington, and the song vanished from streaming sites right after that, which, of course, had the effect ultimately of making the song go to number one on at least one of the Billboard charts. He does think that January 6th, the violence that day, was a mistake. He thinks the time has not come to try to overthrow the government. But he's quite clear that he thinks that time may come, and he's not against rising up against the government in principle. And I do think if the revolution should come, no one should be surprised if the rebels have rap lyrics on their lips. James, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks a lot, John. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. Let us know what you think of the show. You can get in touch at podcasts at economist.com. And you can subscribe to The Economist at economist.com slash intelligence offer. The link is in the show notes. We'll see you back here tomorrow. We all need to write for work. Want to improve? Bolster your skills with Economist Education's six-week online course. You'll explore the craft of writing and learn from The Economist editors how to engage and persuade. Whether it's vibrant memos, pithy social media posts, or storytelling with data. And as a listener, enjoy a 15% discount with the code WRITING. So sign up now at economist.com forward slash business writing. World peace might feel kind of like a pipe dream. But what if I told you it's not? 2024 will see more than 50 elections around the world. And in some places, peace is actually on the ballot. One reason is because countries in Europe and Latin America have been experimenting with this thing called feminist foreign policy. Because right now, the way that we wage war and peace, it's kind of a boys club. The new season of Things That Go Boom from Inkstick Media and PRX is coming March 18th. Find it wherever you get your podcasts.